Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, along with my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. And greetings, Eric. From Reykjavik in Iceland, I'm sitting in an apartment on the Lugaveger in the shadow of the Hallgrimskirchkir. End of the one. I have no idea if I pronounced either of those words correctly. I'm trying to act like I know, but I don't. Um, the only Icelandic word that I actually know how to pronounce is tuk, which is thank you. Tuk. Mm, okay. But anyway, um, this is where I am. Uh, it's the end of a week for me attending a conference of several thousand folks from about 70 different countries, all discussing geopolitics and governance and indigenous rights and a changing climate in the Arctic. And if you're not an Arctic nerd, that doesn't sound like too much fun, I'll wager. But if you are one, like me, it's an annual adventure. So it's been lots of fun. Uh, I'll be heading home soon. But anyway, look, the point of me telling you this, I'm just glad the conference was this week and that this was when I was away from home because there's not much going on in boxing. I haven't checked my email or my phone or anything, but I assume absolutely nothing of any consequence has been in the news that would in any way affect us, surely, in this last week. Hmm. I'm trying to think. Um, even just like beyond what affects us trying to think about what's been happening at all in the world uh mm. I, I i i did read a headline uh u.s customs officials seize giraffe feces from woman at minnesota airport um so so you missed that um and um i'm not sure if you'd heard uh, i think it was a couple weeks ago about that 104 year old woman who became the world's oldest skydiver um this week oh, right. and died yeah she died so you did you did hear about you the important news got through to you okay Think. I think that was just when I was traveling there. Okay. All right. So yeah. So if you're caught up on that, um, and by the way, to be clear, in case anyone was uh, confused, uh, she did not die skydiving. It was right natural causes. On a, on, had nothing to do with the skydiving, as far as I know. But um, yeah, that's that's about it. I think, and unless I'm forgetting something. Oh. Okay. Well, look. Here's what I've got on the list for us to talk about. Um, we will, of course, preview. The crossover heavyweight fight between Tyson Fury and Francis Ngannou, but hopefully not for terribly long. I'll tell you that now. Um, but that aside, there's little on the boxing calendar to occupy us this week. Um, there's, I guess, I'll rely on you for the outside the ring news, but me not paying any attention and all sure. of that. Um, yep. You'll count down the five greatest super middleweight fights of all time. I'll play around to the fight game. We've got a mailbag, I understand. That should be mm -hmm. fun. Oh, wait. There is. There is a wee bit of industry news, isn't there? And we ought to address it, Eric, in all seriousness. We should. Yes, we'll switch into serious mode now. Um, as, uh, as everyone surely knows by now, on Tuesday, Paramount Global made official what we've known was likely for a while, that at the end of the year, Showtime Sports will be no more. After 37 plus years televising boxing, it will come to an end as a result, essentially, of a corporate takeover and the ensuing restructuring not unlike what happened to HBO boxing five years ago, although in that case, the product had clearly declined toward the end as it became less of a priority. In this case, Showtime Boxing had one of its best years ever, sold about two and a half million pay-per-views across three hugely successful cards between April and September, and the fact that it's ending anyway tells us the die was cast back in January when it was announced Showtime was going to combine with Paramount Plus and be rebranded as Paramount Plus with Showtime. It's sad, it's frustrating, but it's reality. Um, 
there's a lot to discuss here, including how it impacts me and Kieran, which a lot of our listeners have been asking about. Uh, but that's not the place to start. Certainly, our podcast is nothing compared to the 38 full-time employees in the Showtime Sports Department and the whole production crew that are losing their jobs. And it's nothing compared to the end of a historic TV boxing franchise. Uh, Kieran, uh, you have known about this news. You aren't just learning about it. Uh, we, we've had five days to reflect on it. And a couple of months, really, to consider it. Uh, what's top of mind for you about this news right now? I mean, a definite sense of sadness, really. Look, as you said, it's the end of a franchise after close to 40 years. And, and as you indicated, we basically knew it was coming. Um, the writing was clearly on the wall and the rumors we were hearing and the conversations we were having. Plus, you know, all you had to do was look at the schedule and see that it wasn't right. being asked to. Um, I think that was uh, the big giveaway. And in fact, you know, you mentioned way back at the beginning with the whole Paramount Plus thing. And even before that became official, when it was just sort of in the industry papers, I remember we had Stephen on last year and we even asked him about it then. Hmm. Uh, and obviously at that point, there was no indication one way or the other, um, but it certainly felt ominous. And, and to sort of like really expand on the point that you made, this isn't really... A, a comment or a reflection on boxing or on showtime boxing it's this is about once again corporate reorganization and reshuffling and what is a ever-changing media landscape you know hbo's demise was preceded by the merger between at&t and time warner mm -hmm. which proved to be a disaster <laughs> and time warner have now uh, uh, have a part of partner with whom they're much better suited in discovery but um yeah, look, boxing is, of course, extremely important to us, extremely important to our listeners, extremely important to Showtime Boxing viewers. But when you're making these decisions at a corporate media megalopolis, it's it's kind of a rounding error. I mean, it's what happens. Beloved series, whole departments, types of programming, they all get the act from time to time with these reshuffles. And they're happening at an even faster clip lately as companies adapt to the realities of this new streaming world and try to figure out. I, I don't think they always make the right decisions. I don't think this is the right decision. Um, but even knowing all of that, I don't think it makes it any easier for us whose futures are affected by those decisions or, or for fans who enjoy watching boxing on Showtime and listening to Mo and Al and Steve and Abner and Raul and BC and Barry and others. Um, yeah, even though we knew it was happening, we could read the tea leaves. When the announcement itself came, it was kind of like a wall collapsing on us all, really. And I think everybody at Showtime Sports felt that. And, and I'm sure as did a lot of fans. And we're all still trying to figure out what's next. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I guess I guess we ought, the two of us ought to issue an apology since we, we killed another boxing program on a premium <laughs> network. Um, like, like clockwork, after five years of us podcasting for the network, it all comes crashing down, you know. I think once once we could chalk up as a fluke, but twice it's it's a trend now, Kieran. So there, yeah, there's it's that. Statistically significant. The one thing <laughs> we can guarantee, it seems, based mm -hmm. on current trends, is if somebody is now dubious about hiring us, we can guarantee you five good years. That's right. And, Absolutely. And possibly some of the best years you've had. <laughs> right. So we, six is not happening, but five five looks good. So Yeah. Yeah, and and I mean, I guess really we whatever, however great people feel Showtime's boxing was this year, that's that's us. That's we get the credit for that. Uh, if we're going to take <laughs> the blame right. for for causing right. the demise of it, um, to to build on the, just the one of the topics you were drilling down on there, you know, some have spoken about the end of Showtime boxing as an indictment of the sport of boxing, and uh, I, I want to specifically shout out uh, ESPN's Dan Raphael, um, who I, I've heard him in a couple of different 
forums proclaiming loudly that, no, this was corporate bean counting. This was, um, you know, uh, Don Corleone gets shot and, and Sonny takes over the family <laughs> business and, and Sonny has his own way of doing things and random people may get whacked. And it tells you more about Sonny than it does yeah. those people getting whacked, I think. Is that a good analogy? I don't know. Maybe, yeah, kind of. Sonny got whacked too, probably. So. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, spoiler. Um, but um, but no, but I mean, I think I think it's fair to criticize a lot of things about the state of boxing and to say that the promoters and networks have made various decisions over the last, I don't know, 40 years that have gradually marginalized the sport. But I do not think you can look at the end of Showtime Boxing as a sign that boxing is unhealthy as a business and unpopular as a sport any more than it was a year ago. Yeah, no, no, exactly. And, and I think, as you, as you pointed out earlier, in fact, we're coming off a very, very successful year at, at Showtime and, and just how well some of those pay-per-views sold and how much attention that they've gotten shown very well that there's clearly interest in boxing. Um, uh, and we still do have some cards remaining on Showtime. Right. Uh, there are pay-per-views on November 25th, December 9th, uh, although the December 9th one hasn't been announced yet. Uh, we will talk about what looks to be on tap for that. There might be a Showtime Championship Boxing on December 16th. It does look as if there's no opportunity for Showbox to say goodbye, yeah. though. And that's a real shame. I think if ever a franchise deserved an opportunity for a, a proper farewell broadcast, it was Showbox and, and everything that all the folks there have put into that franchise for so long now. Absolutely. Although on the bright side, I, I guess I didn't need to see Brian Campbell crying on live TV. And so we are spared that, presumably. <laughs> for now. Yes, right. Exactly. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, so that's yeah, there there are still those things on tap, not entirely squared away and um, chances for some of these other broadcasts to properly say goodbye. And, um, you know, if, if we were independent reporters and not Showtime affiliated podcasters, uh, surely we would toss in some facts and numbers here. Uh, so uh, let's uh, let's do that as if uh, as if we're responsible journalists. Uh, Showtime televised nearly 750 boxing events and nearly 2,000 bouts in total. And uh, I bet Gordon Hall could tell you exactly what each of those 2,000 <laughs> bouts was off the top of his head. Um, and a, a couple other numbers just that I looked up because uh, I was curious uh, to to re- remind myself: USA Tuesday Night Fights lasted 17 years. Friday Night Fights on ESPN2 lasted 17 years. So this was both of those combined plus three. This this is a big deal. Uh-huh. Showtime Boxing, like HBO Boxing, is an institution, was an institution, or I guess is for a couple more months. Yeah, yeah. It, doesn't it show just how much the landscape is changing that, you know, seven years ago you wouldn't have it was impossible to think of boxing broadcasting in the u.s without thinking of hbo and showtime as like the twin that everybody aspired to and it was a shock to lose one and to lose two is quite remarkable really yeah um but you know there's now a, a lot of speculation of who steps in to fill the void what's next um there will be some other network stepping up. It's been widely reported. PBC is looking for a new network. And, you know, there's there's talk of Showtime Sports employees finding new jobs there, perhaps once it's known what that network is. But it's it's all a lot of unknowns for now. Um, and, and, and again, I, I can't emphasize enough that uh, Raskin and Mulvaney should not be anyone's top concern in all of this. Um, this is our side gig. It's an important one. We love it. We want to keep doing it. But uh, but it, it pales in comparison to. 
people who work 40 plus hours a week for Showtime Sports. But um, but, you know, we we are as eager as anyone to see where PBC lands and maybe we'll know soon and maybe we won't. Maybe we'll know till around the end of the year. Um, but uh, I, that's that's the big story to, to follow from here is just some something is going to fill the void left by uh, Paramount shutting down Showtime Boxing. Indeed. And until then, uh, we still are only in mid-October and we are going to be here through the end of the year. So uh, we are going to be broadcasting uh, podcasting every week. And I think, you know, we, we talked about this internally and I think a lot of our podcasts here on in out are going to be uh, going to do a lot of Showtime retrospectives. We're going to yeah. try and do, do good by by Showtime and, and look back and give it the give Showtime Boxing the send off on the podcast that it hasn't always or isn't always going to get an opportunity to between now and the end of the year. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely want to celebrate these 37 years of boxing, all the all the highs, lows, and everything in between. Um, so yeah, we'll have uh, plenty of runway the rest of the year to find ways to do that and hopefully, you know, celebrate it more so than. Uh, wallow in sadness the way we're doing a little bit here as we discuss it uh, on the pod today um so uh all right are we, are we done with our reaction to the showtime news anything else uh, to say on that front uh, or should we uh maybe share some of our listeners reactions uh, yeah let's do that actually because we did get some nice reactions yeah these so just to sort of frame it these were mostly responses to my tweet about the news on tuesday so uh, some of them are sort of commenting to me and about you um but we we got some wonderful messages of support far too many to read them all but um here's a i've picked a a sampling here if uh, the listeners will indulge and uh, let us amplify some quality ass kissing um Paul Newman, uh, not that Paul Newman, a different Paul Newman, uh, he uh, wrote, please continue doing a podcast with Kieran Mulvaney under any guys. You guys have been part of my Monday since the HBO days. It wouldn't be the same. Uh, Gibson Randolph uh, wrote, I really do hope that Kieran Mulvaney and Eric Raskin keep podcasting after the announcement today about Showtime. The fight game, the inside jokes, the knowledge, and quite frankly, their voices have become such a nice spot in my week. Good luck, fellas. Uh, Logan Dobson said, love the show for years, gents. Very hopeful you land on your feet in the boxing world because I'd love to continue listening to your stuff. But obviously, it would be understandable if you wanted out of all this nonsense. Just know you had a ton of fans. Um, Alex Williams wrote, any boxing outfit that isn't ringing your phone to snatch you up is making a mistake. Uh, I may want to hire Alex to come on and be my yes. personal PR man. Um, Peter Davis wrote a uh, heartfelt thanks for what you have put out in the world. It always brightened my week. And uh, last one here, this one was directed uh, to you from uh, at Chow Tom Fat. Uh, he said, be aware that many people love your work with Eric Raskin and would continue listening to your pod wherever you decide to continue. Um, I just got to say, it's it's great to have such a loyal fan base to know that that people don't want you to go away and uh, that you'll be taking this loyal listenership with you to the next stop, wherever it is. So thank you to everyone who reached out. Yeah, it's incredibly humbling. I mean, we're just the pair of knuckleheads who, you know, do do some work and, 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 and watch the fights as best we can and try to come up with our own thoughts. And we're never too sure whether they're any good or not. And to get some kind of to get this kind of feedback. And we're really lucky. Like we get consistent feedback from our listeners. And, and it's just been terrific. And like Eric said, we don't know where we're going. We don't know what's going to happen, but we're hopeful that something will and we will be sure to uh, let you guys know as soon as we know. 
Definitely. Um, and, uh, you know, those lovely Twitter comments weren't the only bit of feedback from the audience we received this week. Uh, we also put out a mailbag call. Happened to be the day before the show, Showtime news came out. Uh, so uh, let's continue hearing from the listeners with some of their questions for us. Uh, we start the mailbag with a longer one sent via email by Owen Lewis. Uh, he writes... Irrationally excited for this, the first mailbag since I started listening to Rasky and the Bove. Uh, love the podcast to bits. Really hope you guys get to keep going in 2024, but thanks so much for all the pods regardless. I'm wondering about the best game plans from underdogs that you've seen in fights. The fighter with the good game plan doesn't even have to have been the winner, but what fights have featured unusually sharp tactics that had a profound impact on the fight in a way that was unexpected? If this question is too specific and there aren't any good answers, I'd also love to know the best losses you've seen where a fighter acquitted themselves wonderfully like Denaire in the first Inouye fight, but came up short anyway. Would love to know your thoughts. Uh, Kieran, he kind of gave us options on, on what part of that to answer there. Uh, does either a great performance in defeat or a great underdog game plan jump to mind for you? So the the great underdog game plan that comes to mind is an historically great one when Max Schmeling beat Joe Lewis mm. the time because he noticed that Lewis always dropped his left hand after throwing a jab and he went in with that game plan knowing that every time <clears throat> excuse me Lewis pulled his jab back and down he'd hit him with a right hand and overhand right and he did it over and over and over again all night until he knocked him out so um, that's one uh, more recently one obvious one is Buster Douglas against Mike Tyson mm-hmm. and yes. We focus on the fact that Tyson was a train wreck going into that contest, and we know that Douglas was motivated by the death of his mother, but there was a technical blueprint too. Douglas was taller and longer than Tyson, and his team knew that Tyson was dangerous if you let him come forward and get set. Uh, so what they did was keep Tyson on the back foot with uh, using Douglas's height and jab, and then whenever Tyson did look like he was coming forward, took that little half step back into the to the side, never allowed Tyson to, to really get close enough to hit him, except for that one moment in the eighth. Um, and so that was a very good technical blueprint as well. And more recently, I, I'm not sure if Marco Antonio Barrera was the underdog against Nassim Hamed, but I he, think he, he was. was. He was, yeah. But, okay. Um, even if perhaps he shouldn't have been. And and that was just, I think, a, one of the modern masterpieces of the of the genre he just used hamed's lack of conventional boxing skills that had proven such a problem for so many people to his own advantage and he just stayed focused used his jab used his boxing skills got in hamed's grill and just ground him down um and dimitri bivol who also in hindsight mm. shouldn't have been the underdog against canelo again using his skills and, and physical ability, turning Canelo's weaknesses against him, keeping him on the back foot, not letting him get set, um, keeping him on the defensive. Those were ones that came to mind. And in terms of really good performances by underdogs that fell short, uh, I was struggling a bit there. And I'm, and I'm sure you'll probably come up with a few and I'll go, oh, gosh, yes, of course. But one that did come to mind, like a brave performance in defeat, was Eric Morales against Marcus Maidana, which oh, was that's a, fight. a good one. Yeah. Yeah. That I remember of those who thought at the time god this fight shouldn't happen paul morales is going to get killed and, and he lost but and he's and his face was horribly swollen up but it was a tremendous last gasp one good fight left in me kind of thing from a veteran but i'm sure there's lots more that i'm forgetting i don't know if you've got any that come to mind yeah well one of them spins perfectly off of that is uh an underdog who was brilliant but came up short how about maidana in the two mayweather fights um those were mm-hmm. Those were great losses and are arguably the two best performances of Maidana's career just because he he was able to push Floyd Mayweather and give him a close fight when going in. Nobody really expected that. Um, One other one that jumps to mind on that front, um, going back a a fair bit further, I think 
you gave me this in the fight game at one point, if I'm remembering correctly. Azuma Nelson's losing effort against Salvador Sanchez. Uh, is it, yes. That's yes. like an all-timer underdog, in that case kind of unknown, did not win the fight, but did himself a huge service just by coming close to winning the fight. Um, yeah. And uh, as, as far as the, the game plans... You, you listed some good ones. Um, I was also certainly thinking of Douglas and Tyson, a, a couple of others. Um, and it's, it's funny how you're sort of noting that, you know, in retrospect, this fighter or that fighter shouldn't have been an underdog because they almost all feel that way. In retrospect, yes. after, after you see the <laughs> modest underdog having pulled it off, it's like, oh, why was he ever the underdog? But like one of those, um, we were just talking about uh, about this guy last week with Fred Sternberg. Winky Wright against Felix Trinidad. He had a perfect mm-hmm. game plan of jab, jab, jab some more, keep jabbing, <laughs> um, and and really followed it to a T. And um, a related one, um, also against Trinidad, Bernard Hopkins. Um, he, uh, another one that like, in retrospect, it seems crazy that he was the underdog, but he was the underdog. Um, he, uh, he talked uh, when I did the, uh, 15th anniversary documentary style podcast about the fight. He talked about timing Tito's movements, knowing his rhythm and throwing jabs right in between these two specific movements every time to always force, force Tito to reset. Um, that's, that's a, was a perfect game plan, perfectly executed. The only other one I'm thinking of, do we want to give Tyson Fury credit for a great game plan against Vladimir Klitschko? It, oh. was, a, it was an awful fight, but that <laughs> was, was the way for Fury point. to win. Yep, 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 good point, indeed. Um, next up, longtime friend of the podcast, Matthew Swain, tweeted to you, Eric, in a theoretical podcast triathlon made up of one boxing trivia, two snarky tweets, and three arm wrestling. <laughs> Who wins, you or Kieran? I'm not sure how arm wrestling got in here. Uh, so, <laughs> um, but uh, I'm left-handed, and, and Kieran, you are, you are right-handed, correct? You are correct, sir, yes. Yeah, oh, so... That's- Bit of an advantage. Yeah, so well, so there's no fair fight between us in, in arm wrestling. But I, I'll just say I was never a great arm wrestler, even in my peak working out days. Um, so I'm, I'd be willing to concede that one that if we had the same dominant arm, I may just go ahead and make you the favorite on the on the arm wrestling portion of the triathlon. But but the other categories, I mean, snarky tweets. Oh, yeah. I don't even tweet anymore. So that's (laughs) right. But over for you. But it would have been anyway a win. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's like asking who's more British or who's more Jewish. There's (laughs) there's really nothing to debate here with the snarky tweets. Um, Then boxing trivia. I'm going to say me. Um, I'm I'm, I'm I'm too. Okay, good. I'm glad we agree. Because, yeah, as long as trivia is not is is indeed trivial, if it pertains to sports or pop culture and nothing important. I, I, yeah, I think I make myself about a minus 300 favorite to beat you in trivia. So even if I concede arm wrestling, I, I win this triathlon. Yeah, and by this stage, you know you've won two of the first three legs, so you're right. not bothering with the arm wrestling. You're <laughs> right. just making snarky tweets about it during the <laughs> Yes. <laughs> uh, all right, um, here's one from uh, Paul Newman. Uh, again, not the Paul Newman you know of, different Paul Newman. Uh, we just heard from him in the nice comments from listeners segment. Uh, Love his salad dressings. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, he writes, uh, just watched The Hurricane. Really good movie about Reuben Carter. Which boxers, past or present, do you think should have a movie made about them? And then he puts uh, with a little asterisks, here's Eric shouting Arturo Gatti. Um, I have thoughts, but uh, you go first, Kieran. Well, I was thinking less a movie than a 24-episode limited series on Miguel Cotto. That is, 
nothing more than slow-mo footage of Miguel shot through a soft focus filter. I would <laughs> watch the crap out of that. Um, but, but somewhat more seriously, I almost hate to say this because of who he was as a person and what he did. But one name that comes to mind is Edwin Valero. Yeah. Um, his story continues to captivate people. I just wrote a column about him just, what, two months ago that got more response than anything I've written for a long time. The reason I'm hesitant to say it is because one doesn't want to glorify a murderer. But I thought that that um, Netflix show uh, about Carlos Monzon that we mm. dissected a couple of years ago during the pandemic, I thought that sort of, obviously the story is different, but it, it, I thought it gave a good template in how you can have a nuanced view of somebody like that and portray yeah. it well uh you definitely didn't come out of that show thinking that monzon was a great dude at the end and and that kind of approach i think could be really interesting it, it's 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 an extraordinary tale edwin valero and i think it like i said it does continue to captivate people what do you think yeah i mean he, he crossed my mind as well and and the, the i hadn't thought about the monzon series but that is a, a perfect example of how you can do that sort of thing um First off, let me just say that the, the Hurricane is indeed a very good movie. Uh, Denzel deserved the Oscar. They stole it from him. That was, I still consider that the best acting performance I've ever seen. Um, the, the movie is a bit uneven, but all in all, I, I, I do like it quite a bit. So, Gaddy, yeah, his his life is probably movie-worthy for good reasons and for awful reasons. Um, I'm, sh I'm sure I've said this before, but right after I saw The Fighter, the Mickey Ward movie, and, you know, uh, Christian Bale won the Oscar and it had momentum and all, I thought they could have done a sequel that was all about Mickey and Arturo. Um, it's too yeah. late now. Mark Wahlberg ain't playing 30-something Mickey at this point. Um, but, um, but, you know, since The Fighter narrative ended before the first Gaddy fight. They, they could have gone that route. Uh, great rivals become great friends and let, you know, Mickey's mass hole sisters keep co providing comic relief and all that. Um, a few others that jumped to mind. Uh, Bernard Hopkins' story could be a good movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, Johnny Tapia, uh, certainly. Uh, could, there's a lot to work with there. And, and then I was trying to think about an active fighter. How about Deontay Wilder? Um, his story, you know, coming to boxing so late, being maybe the most gifted puncher ever, having a sick daughter that motivated him to, to stick with the sport. I think I think a, a lot of the broad strokes for a movie are there. Yeah, that's interesting. Actually. Caleb Plan on that note, mm -hmm. as well, perhaps, mm -hmm. right? He's another interesting cat. I mean, there's just that's actually what attracted me to boxing in the first place. Like in terms of writing about it, it in, obviously I've been a fan of the sport, but it's the stories in boxing. And I, and I do think that's what sort of elevates it from a lot of sports, not just the boxers, but all the people around. There are some insane characters with some amazing life stories, but Crawford for heaven's sake, man got shot in the head and walked away from it. Um, and look how he wound up. So there's, there's, there's all kinds of stuff like that, but I think in a past movie, yeah, they would, there there actually was one. It was uh, Miles Teller played Vinnie Paz. That's it. Yeah, because I was going to say he's another obvious one, but yeah. I wasn't. Just, I had a feeling there had been one. I haven't seen it. Yeah, yeah. I I, I actually did see it. Um, it was fine. Uh, not not my favorite. Not my least favorite. I I do want to say. Uh, I I may get to work on the script of the Caleb Plant movie just so I can make sure it includes a scene of some idiot <laughs> podcaster telling him that they placed a bet against him and I uh, getting a. a, a having Caleb Plant stare a hole right through him uh, as a result of him saying that. That that scene is making the movie. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Um, 
Here's one from Homer who writes, uh, since the opt-in Bridgerweight class at 224 isn't taking off, what do you guys think of moving Cruiserweight back to 190, creating an intermediate division with a limit of 210, and then making that the new floor for heavyweights? So we've touched on questions like this here and there. My short answer is... um, this sounds better than what we have with Bridger weight. I, 224 is just a silly weight limit. Uh, 210 makes a little more sense to separate the borderline heavyweights from the huge heavyweights. Uh, and then you you would have to drop cruiserweight back to 190 if you're making that division 210. It's logical, but A, good luck getting the numerous alphabet groups to all agree to make 190 the cruiserweight limit again. And B, whatever the division just below heavyweight is, the money will always be at heavyweight. And so this 210-pound division, like Bridgerweight now, it'll be ruled by also Rams. Because the elite ones, like Oleksandr Usyk, you know, he could make 210 if he wanted to, but he can compete with the big boys. So why fight at Bridgerweight or whatever? So I, I think Homer's idea makes sense, but it ain't happening. Yeah, and I realized as I was thinking about this question, that of course, sometimes we forget that cruiserweight actually is the bridge of weight like before cruiserweight came along it was 175 was the base right. of heavy for a lot of boxing and cruiserweight has filled that role and with exceptions the holyfield era the usic era it's been a pretty dull division yeah because for that very same reason that you said i mean i think the only way and, I, and it is important to acknowledge that on average heavyweights are far bigger than when the weight divisions were originally come up uh, were originally created not yeah. all not all of them but some of them are i guess the the only other idea is to actually you know say 250 is the limit for heavyweight and above that is super heavyweight but but as mm. you said the thing is there's an attraction around the heavyweight division that is the division and whether it's starving themselves to go back under 250 or bulking up to go above 200 but that's what boxers are going to want to do they want to fight in the heavyweight division whatever else we do with it i think yeah uh, all right, last one here uh, for the mailbag comes to us from Four Corners Boxing, and it kind of brings the conversation full circle. He writes, what are your journalist memories covering Triple G, Canelo 1 and 2? Of course, Canelo, Triple, Triple G was the last major HBO pay-per-view before we got the bad news there. Uh, that's why I'm saying this brings us back around to the big news topic of the week. Uh, Kieran, your main memories of the first two fights in that trilogy, uh, both of which we were ringside for? A lot of my memories for those fights are pre-fight ones, um, going with Ed Mulholland to Big Bear and San Diego on consecutive days to spend time in camp with, with uh, Golovkin and Canelo. Uh, I remember being at the press conference in Los Angeles to officially announce the rematch before it was postponed. Um, and I remember particularly the venom between the two camps by that stage that it would only be exacerbated when Canelo tested positive for Fembuterol. Mm. Um, I remember the anticipation before the rematch that Canelo would have a very different approach, um, that he looked maybe as if he was slimmer, as if he was going to be boxing more than fighting Glovkin, and then he came out and did the exact opposite, walked right into the middle of the ring and started slugging with him. Um, I also remember, of course, that the re- with the rematch, that the undercard finished incredibly early, oh, right. leaving like 90 minutes of time to fill on the broadcast. So I was called out of the bullpen to go interview Golovkin in his locker room. But he wouldn't come out because he was in a snit with HBO. So I interviewed Abel Sanchez instead. And to return to the theme of killing major boxing franchises, <laughs> that was the last pre-fight interview anybody ever did on HBO pay-per-view. So wow. yay me! Um, <laughs> And I just also remember, you know, being ringside for both fights that were tremendously high quality, really exciting, and 
Yes, they could have been two two zip to Golovkin, but they were both really close. I think you scored them both a draw, and I cool. had the first one a draw and the second one by a round to Canelo. I think they were close, close, close fights, even if one of the scorecards in the first fight was way off. Yeah. So one thing that I remember about the first fight is just uh, them having that unusual bet available at MGM to bet over under the number of total points either boxer would win on the scorecards if it went all 12 and and that I won a bet by betting Canelo's over figuring I, I think whatever I if memory serves they put his total at like 339 which basically meant an average of 113 on each card um mm. and, and and I figured I figured it was going to be a close fight I, I gave Canelo a chance all along of of, of winning that fight and I also figured he was going to get more credit than he deserved from at least one or two judges. Um, yeah. So I, I won the over there, but that was nothing compared to, I remember Brian Campbell bet the draw and, and, and won a nice chunk on, on that first fight. Um, if I remember right for the first fight, I think it was that I, I was back in the elevated area at T-Mobile while you were like truly ringside. I was just off ringside. And then, and then I think for the rematch, we were seated right next to each other. Um, but I, I just remember both of them being, outstanding fights in the moment that maybe lost a little something when you watch them back after the fact, knowing yeah. what was going to happen, that that part of what made them so good, especially the first one, I, the second fight was the more exciting fight, but, but in the first one in particular, it was exciting because of the uncertainty over whether Triple G was going to detonate a bomb and, and ice Canelo. And of course, Canelo stood up to the fire without ever really getting badly hurt in that fight. But it was it was edge of your seat as it unfolded live and maybe a little less so once you're watching it after knowing the result. But yeah, I mean, outstanding fights, outstanding atmospheres. And it is a shame that that 118-110 scorecard is among the first things people think of when they think of that excellent rivalry. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Uh, all right. Thank you, everybody. We really appreciate that. And uh, maybe we'll do another mailbag or two mm-hmm. between now and the end of the year as well. Um, but for now, let's move on to the rest of the week's news. Uh, we'll split it into two parts. Things having to do with either Jake Paul or Tyson Fury and things not having to do with them. Um, I will give you the parts that have to do with Jake Paul or Tyson Fury because I'm nice like that. Um, <laughs> yes. Fury said this week as he promotes his fight with Francis Ngannou that we'll be previewing shortly that he wants to sign a 10-fight deal after this. But as we know, Tyson Fury says a lot of things and only means some of them, if he even means that many of them. <laughs> um, Hall of Famer Carl Frotch called Fury and Ganu a, quote, joke shop fight, but then said he would like to fight Jake Paul. Yep. Uh, speaking of Paul, his next <laughs> fight is scheduled for December 15th on DAZN, not pay-per-view. Opponents to be announced despite some seemingly unfounded rumors of a Nate Diaz rematch on pay-per-view. And Paul's most valuable promotions has extended its deal with DAZN into 2024 with six cards planned for the year. Uh, Eric, your thoughts then on Paul, Fury, Frotch, and all of this. Uh, look, I, I can't blame Carl Frotch for declaring his interest in fighting Jake Paul. Um, you know, you're, you're retired. You're not really thinking of fighting again. But here's a fight where you'd make a lot of money to face a guy who... As great as he is for a late starting celebrity boxer, he is still a celebrity boxer, not a boxer boxer. So Frotch should still, in his mid-40s, I think have no real issues handling him. Uh, But yeah, whether he was being intentionally ironic calling for that bout (laughs) right after calling Fury and Ganu a joke shop fight, I don't know. 
there are lots of things Frotch says that I'd love to be able to infer some intentional irony. Uh, that doesn't mean it's always there. Um, Fury fighting 10 more times. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to bet the under, uh, he, he doesn't, he doesn't mean it. He's just saying it. He, now he may still be fighting 10 years from now, uh, but he won't have fought 10 times. He'll have, you know, two fights. He'll disappear for three years. He'll come back. He'll fight once. He'll retire. He'll come back two years later, fight again, etc. Um, don't really have anything to say about Jake Paul's December 15th fight until we know the opponent, of course. Uh, but I, I do think these MVP cards are a good investment. I, I'm glad DAZONE is investing in the young fighters. And it's smart to be in business with Jake Paul, who, mm. look, we, we can we can crap on the influencer boxing all we want. There's money in it. That Misfits card that we mostly ignored last week, I don't necessarily trust the sourcing here entirely. But supposedly... Internationally, it sold 1.3 million pay-per-views. Uh, if it's even, if that's even close to true, then, then you know there is logic and upside to being in the Jake Paul business. Yeah. Uh, other odds and ends. Uh, Don King is still going. He announced cards for November and December. One is headlined by Adrian Broner. Enough said about that. The British promotional company Boxer signed a deal with Peacock and NBC, though the headliner on the first show this past Saturday, Joshua Boatze versus Dan Aziz, had to be scrapped on short notice due to an injury suffered by Aziz during his final training session. Natasha Jonas became the first black woman to obtain a manager's license from the British Boxing Board of Control, and this is while she is still active as a fighter at age 39. We have a site for Ryan Garcia versus Oscar Duarte. That December bout will be at the Toyota Center in Houston. Um, nothing official yet about the December 9th Showtime pay-per-view that may or may not be the network's final show, but reports from the likes of ESPN's Dan Raphael and Keith Eidek uh, indicate it will include Danny Garcia versus Eris Landilara, Keith Thurman versus Amantis Stanionis, and a rematch between Chris Colbert and Jose Valenzuela. And lastly, sad news. The actor Burt Young died recently at age 83. He's famous, of course, for playing Rocky Balboa's brother-in-law, Paulie. And Burt Young was a huge boxing fan. I can't tell you how many fights I covered in Atlantic City and New York in the late 90s and early 2000s that he was ringside for. So uh, rest in peace, Burt Young. Kieran, a lot of random stuff here. Anything you want to comment on? Um, a couple of things. Uh, I saw that December 9th card, and if it does go ahead as planned, certainly we'll talk about it more, but it wouldn't be the worst of notes to go out on it. It's certainly a, a more interesting card than the one with which HBO ended. With all <laughs> yeah. Low bar. <laughs> and I believe it would be the 100th boxing card at the MGM Grand, which is mm. why... MGM want to, you know, have a pretty big one. And, and and that might say something about why there are rumors that Floyd Mayweather may have an exhibition on there as well. But right. we'll see. Uh, whatever happens, I hope Showtime sends us out there with instructions to break the last of the budget. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what else? Uh, I'm interested to see what happens with Boxer and NBC slash Peacock. Um, I can't imagine it's a huge deal. But again, to get back to the point that we touched on at the very beginning, it shows that there is a boxing audience out there, and and there continues to be one. And uh, it provides an opportunity for, for U.S. audiences to see some more of these fights from the U.K., so that's great. Um, and R.I.P. to Burt Young, the Ernest Borgnine of the 70s, as they called him for a while. <laughs> he was that good, reliable, sidekick, hmm. slightly worn kind of uh, character actor, and uh, who, as a famous non-watcher of all but a select few entries in the Rocky franchise, I... Remember for his guest starring role in the season two episode of MASH, L.I.P. 
local indigenous personnel, which he performed very well. And apparently it was a bit of a boost for his career and helped mm. get him into, uh, bring him to the attention of, of Stallone uh, when he was casting um, Rocky. So there you go, RIP to him. Hmm. I, I do not remember that episode of MASH. I, I watched a fair amount of MASH, but I was, you know, very young and not like a devoted catch every episode kind of person. Um, but the other the thing beyond Rocky that I remember him from was the very short lived sitcom Roomies. I think that was the name Oops. of it, where he and Corey Haim played freshman year college roommates like Burt Young was the Rodney Dangerfield type going back to school okay. and Corey Haim was a was a more natural freshman and it I, I don't think it even made it through a full season but I remember watching that oh yeah and that episode if you remember there was somebody in the mass unit who had had a kid with a Korean woman and he wanted to be able to marry her and he was like the sort of internal affairs guy sent by the army to check into it and he was very skeptical until hawkeye got him incredibly drunk and managed mm. to like took a photo of him with his pants off or something like the, that got him got him drunk huh that's so burt young was definitely typecast <laughs> yes there you go all righty uh let me see what else all right let's recap this past weekend's fights very quickly um not much to talk about but the two fights that stand out included one action-packed beatdown and one fairly dull distance fight in liverpool 140 pound contender jack catterall defeated 38 year old jorge linares by unanimous decision after 12 mostly cautious rounds and would called once again for a rematch with Josh Taylor. I'm not sure going 12 rounds with a 38-year-old Jorge Linares is necessarily the best way to make that case, but mm. still. Um, and in Inglewood, California, Giovanni Santian outslugged Alexis Roca in what the sports book said was a big upset, bloodying Roca, dropping him twice in the fifth and finishing him in the sixth to spoil his alphabet mandatory uh, welterweight. Uh, Eric, thoughts on these two main events that DAZN streamed on Saturday? I am kicking myself, Kieran. I, I, I called it out on last week's show that the odds for Roca Santian made no sense to me. Santian was like a plus 460 underdog, and I thought it was more or less a 50-50 fight. But but I did say, hey, you know, before I actually bet, I'm going to I'm gonna make sure to watch some video and make sure my instincts are right, that it, indeed I, I know better than the odds makers. And then I never found time or made time to study up. I didn't bother making any bets, and thus I have deprived myself of a pizza party. Um, but, uh, I, I mean, it seems to me like Roca was favored because he's gotten a bigger promotional push and because he was ranked number one by an alphabet group. That's it. Based on in-ring talent and accomplishment, this should have been close to even money. Uh, although, as it turned out, even that was wrong, because this this was not a toss-up fight. Santian absolutely dominated every second of this. He was unusually aggressive, just took the fight to him, maybe because new trainer Robert Garcia devised the perfect game plan, maybe because Santian knows Roca well from sparring together and, and had enormous confidence from having shared the ring with him a lot that, that he could take him. Whatever the case, Santian was better in every possible way, and now maybe he inherits the right to get dominated by Terrence Crawford. Um, <laughs> but but it was a highly entertaining fight. Can't say the same for Caterall Linares. Caterall was efficient. That's about all I can say for him. Uh, Linares, he just doesn't have it anymore. As we said last week, appeared to be the case that, that he was nearing the end. He, he got wobbled in the sixth round by just like a nothing punch. Um, and, and otherwise, there was really no drama here. Um, but, you know, I, I'm up for Taylor Catterall, too. There, there's a score to settle there, and I don't see a more logical fight for either of them right now. All right, Kieran, would you like to play a game? <laughs> That's for more games, right? Is that what I'm doing there? Oh, that's what it is. Yes, it is indeed. Okay. So anyway, are you ready to play the fight game? 
Yes. All right, here we go. Your first clue. This fight stunk in the ring. It was a shutout on all three cards, but it did great at the box office, selling about 1.2 million pay-per-view buys. So, relatively recent, 90s onward. You are correct. I will not dissuade you of, of, of that uh, anything in that comment. It is from the 90s onward. Did Tyson have a very boring... Is this like Mike Tyson, Tony Tucker? Is that your guess? Mike Tyson, Tony Tucker, wasn't it? Uh, that is that is incorrect. Um, I don't know whether that was would have been on pay-per-view or just I like regular sure HBO or something, but, but that was pretty close to a shutout if if not indeed a full shutout and uh, it did go the distance and uh um so a reasonable guess but no in, not, incorrect not what i'm looking for here this next clue will help you hone in on the on the time frame a little better victorious fighters on the pay-per-view undercard included lucas matisse and jojo diaz and on the off tv portion ryan garcia oh Oh, okay. So much more recent than that. Yeah. Um, and Lucas Matisse was victorious, you say, on the Sundercar. Yes, Matisse and Diaz both scored wins, as did Ryan Garcia in the off-TV portion of the undercard. I'm trying to think how long Ryan Garcia's been fighting. Not that long, huh? Right. Or maybe it's a smidge longer than I realized. I don't know the answer to this. Okay. All right. So you're, you're ready for clue three. Yes. Okay. All right. Here we go. Back to those pay-per-view buys. This was the first fight not featuring Manny Pacquiao or Floyd Mayweather to sell a million units since Lennox Lewis, Mike Tyson. And for the winner, who improved to 49-1-1, one, and one, it set up his next fight that would sell even better on pay-per-view. So it's the first fight. Not, so that means it's it's super recent. Um, so the only other person I can think of. So it must be a Canelo pay per view. Uh, yes, you you have named one of the fighters. I will tell you that it is a Canelo pay per view. Who was he boring? Oh, Chavez. Yep, you got it. It is uh, Canelo Alvarez versus Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. Oh, right, which is nice. Enough for him um you know golovkin you're next <laughs> right <laughs> yep uh the date the date was may 6th 2017 and you know so i i came up with the fight game before we figured out all the what was going to be in the mailbag and then we had that canelo golovkin question and i was like a little worried if chavez's name pops up here is he going to be top of mind and make this like a Kieran gets it in one sort of situation? But I was happy that Chavez's name didn't pop up. And thus you got it in three, which was about what I might have guessed otherwise. Would you like to know uh, clues four and five? Yes, by all means, please. So clue four. Uh, and, and this one, I think, would have clinched it for you if you didn't happen to think of it on three. This fight took place at T-Mobile Arena on a Cinco de Mayo weekend and was contested at a catch weight of 164 and a half pounds. Like that, yeah, that would have definitely jogged your memory. Um, yeah. And clue five, the loser is known in part for eating cereal in his underwear. And to put this fight in breakfast terms, his opponent was cinnamon and he was toast. 
Oh, that's great. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I'm very proud. I am physically patting myself on the back right now. Yeah, that's outstanding. Uh, yeah, I definitely would have gotten it with, with four and five. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, starting thinking I was starting in, in the... I really thought I had I had it there with Mike Tyson, Tony Tucker, and then turns out I was 30 years out, but that's yeah. okay. Yeah, but the, the, this was fortunately a case where Clue 2 re, re-steered you away from the Tyson era so that so that you didn't go down uh, too too far off of a path. Yes, indeed. All right. All right. Let's look ahead to this coming weekend. Uh, A few fights worthy of mention, but not in-depth preview. Uh, On Friday in Orlando, on DAZN, Amanda Serrano faces Danila Ramos, a fight mostly notable for, as we discussed previously, being scheduled for 12 three-minute rounds. On ESPN Plus Saturday from Managua, Nicaragua, Jonathan Gonzalez defends his 108-pound strap against Gerardo Zapata. In Cancun, Mexico, Saturday on DAZN, Oshaki Foster makes his first 130-pound title defense against Eduardo Rocky Hernandez. But the most mainstream fight by far is Saturday in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia on ESPN Plus pay-per-view. Heavyweight champ Tyson Fury meeting former UFC heavyweight champ Francis Ngano, who was stripped of that title in January when he and the UFC could not come to terms on a new contract. It's a 10-round boxing match, not for Fury's alphabet title, Although, for those who consider Fury the lineal champion, that title is on the line. There are some name heavyweights on the undercard. Uh, Joseph Parker, Carlos Takam, Fabio Wardley. Perhaps one of them will deliver a performance worthy of discussion for next week's pod. Uh, but for now, let's just focus on Fury and Gano. Kieran, where's your interest level? Does this bother you less now that Fury has agreed to fight Usyk next? And what sort of odds would I need to give you to get you to bet on Ngano to win? I'm completely uninterested in this, okay. um, and 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 this might be a this might be a reflection on on me as much as anything. But I, I don't understand. To sort of follow up again from that point you were making about how well that Misfits boxing card supposedly did on pay per view, I don't understand why there presently appears to be so much interest in very bad boxing, <laughs> uh, particularly at a time when some truly excellent actual boxing matchups are getting made. Uh, right. I don't know what I'm missing here and, 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 and what it is. And I, I, I suspect there's as much interest in Fury and Ganu as there is in Fury Usyk and maybe even more. And, and I don't know why. Um, but uh, there you go. I have come around to your point of view, which is that I don't hate it now because we are theoretically getting Fury Usyk afterwards. Like if, is what it takes to keep Tyson Fury engaged and entertained and paid and active so that he will then face Alexander Usyk. So be it, if that's the price that I have to pay. Um, And so, yeah, it makes a huge difference in how I feel about it. Um, I hadn't thought about it in that way until you'd mentioned it, but no, I I think that's bad. Um, But the reason I'm completely uninterested in it is I just don't think there's any real note of jeopardy here. I I don't doubt that Nganu can punch and that he has heavy hands, but are those hands fast enough or accurate enough to even touch Fury, let alone knock him out? I just, I doubt it. Um, as for the odds, I think I saw that Nganu is presently something like about a plus 700 dog. Is that yeah, about right? that sounds about right, yeah. That's not going to get any action. No. Out. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Plus 2,000, I maybe start thinking about it. I, I don't know. I, look, as far as I can tell, Ngano isn't going to win this fight unless there's something I'm missing. And Eric, in my absence, I understand that you took one for the team and watched some of Ngano's MMA fights. 
any analysis to offer? Uh, any thoughts on whether he could possibly land that shot that spoils Fury Usyk? So I, I remember hearing somewhere someone claiming Angano will be the hardest puncher Fury has ever faced, and that's why he has a chance. Um, tell me you don't know who Deontay Wilder is without <laughs> exactly. telling me you don't know who Deontay Wilder is. Uh, that said, it would appear having recently binged Ngano highlights, not full fights, just some highlights, basically his knockouts, that he is indeed a serious puncher, at least with MMA gloves on. And I also have to say, for an MMA fighter, he is indeed a good boxer. You know, compared to some of the MMA, MMA guys Jake Paul has fought, compared to Conor McGregor, I think Ngano throws his punches pretty well. He, he throws a decent straight one-two, has a very nice uppercut, actually, and he has good countering instincts. He, he can fire off a fairly quick counter with either hand. If there's an obvious flaw, it's his hooks and crosses. They, they can get absurdly wide at times, which may be effective in MMA, but I can't imagine one of those punches landing on Tyson Fury. And then, you know, the main thing here is what the hell is Ngannou going to do about the punches coming back at him from Fury and Fury's moves and his awkwardness and his ring intelligence. Um, this will look nothing like what he's used to against MMA fighters when he when he squares up to box them. So I guess what I'm saying is, while my usual blanket statement is that a good MMA fighter who isn't a boxer has no chance against an actual good boxer in a boxing ring, Engano may actually be great enough at boxing for a non-boxer that he would stand a chance against some heavyweight pro boxers. Like, gotcha. you know, Engano versus... One of those veterans on the undercard we named, Carlos Takam or Joe Parker. He's a he's an underdog against those guys, but 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 I think he's a live underdog based on what I've seen. I can't believe I'm saying that, but 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 I am saying that he is a super talented athlete with some decent boxing skills. He still has next to zero chance against Fury because Fury is special and because boxing is so instinctive for him. I do not expect this to be competitive. I expect that Fury will mostly do what he wants. And if he wants to knock Ngano out, he will knock Ngano out. But, you know, having studied some video of Ngano, I have to be honest, I'm adjusting my take from he has zero chance of spoiling Fury Usyk to he has some very small number that is slightly above zero chance of spoiling Fury Usyk. Can I turn your question to me around? Sure. What kind of odds would it take for you to risk a pizza? I I, th I think the number that you landed on, I agree with you, plus 700, hell no. That's a waste of money. That's uh, But once we get up to about 20 to 1, it's probably still not a positive expected value bet at 20 to 1. Like That would mean one in every 21 times Nganu's got a win for it to really be good value, and I still think he's probably lower than that. But the fun of the reward on 20 to 1, that's, yeah, that's about where I'd bet it. Plus 2,000, I'd probably bet it. Plus 3,000 or so, you're getting around the point where there's actually maybe some value in it. Gotcha. All right. It is time to wind this show down with the top five countdown. Uh, as we approach the November 25th Benavides Andrade pay-per-view, you challenged me with ranking the top five greatest fights in the history of the super middleweight division, a division that will turn 40 years old next year. So it's it's a purely modern history assignment, which is nice. Um, I've actually been covering boxing for the majority of the years in question, and um that led me to knowing a few semi-obscure great fights that I remember that the annals of history may not. Uh, and as a result, I think I have a couple of surprises in store for you on my okay. list. Uh, 
Um, and at number five, I have one of those semi-obscure surprises. Uh, actually, I have two of them. I'm doing a Mulvaney-style cheat. I'm yeah, you this. know. <laughs> <laughs> I make, well, the podcast is almost over. The rules are out the window. Um, I'm making this a co-number five, but these two fights do go hand in hand. The fights are... ESPN2 Friday Night Fights' 2003 Fight of the Year and ESPN2 Friday Night Fights' 2004 Fight of the Year, Scott Pemberton's 12-round decision win over Omar Shika in their first fight, and Pemberton KO Shika in the rematch, both forgotten classics. Uh, do, do, you re- do you remember these fights, Kieran? Did you watch I them? either of them. Okay. I must have watched them, but I don't remember them. Okay. I, re- I remember Omar Shika being constantly in good fight. Yes. But... Yeah, and Pemberton too. They were both exciting fighters. They they were not serious contenders. They were fringe contenders, really. Guys with huge hearts, good power, and modest skills. But they, they really fit perfectly together. In the first fight, Sheikah dropped Pemberton hard in round two. Pemberton survived and outboxed and outworked him to win most of the next eight rounds or so. And then late in the 11th, Sheikah hurt Pemberton again, had him out on his feet tried furiously to finish the whole 12th round. Pemberton showed insane will to survive and, and ended up winning by one point on two cards. In the rematch, again, Sheikah dropped Pemberton in round two. Again, he got up and fought back. It was a sheer war, but this time Sheikah ran out of gas and Pemberton stopped him in the 10th. I can't tell you which fight was better. They were both sensational. I'm letting them share my number five spot. Okay, excellent. All right. Uh, number because I don't remember. <laughs> right, so. right. Okay. Uh, they, they're, they're out there on YouTube if you want to uh, enjoy some uh, some savagery. Uh, number four, this one you surely will remember. Uh, this one I think people would expect to see on the list. A title unification fight in 2007 between the two best super middles in the world at the time, a battle of unbeatens. Joe Calzaghe's unanimous decision win in Cardiff, Wales over Mikkel Kessler. Unlike Pemberton Sheikah, uh, there were no knockdowns in this one, just 12 fast-paced rounds fought at a high skill level, close all the way, but Calzaghe a notch better, especially down the stretch. Just one of those fights where it was impossible to watch this and not be entertained and impressed with both guys, really. This is, this is like one of the all-time fights in terms of nobody can call it an A-plus action fight but you'd be crazy not to call it an A. Uh, it was just so, so, so good, if, if not quite historically great. Yeah, and it's. I think we mentioned Kalzagi. I can't remember if it was a, a top five list or what it was, but uh, fighters that we'd underestimated mm-hmm. in the past. And I'm sure I mentioned Kalzagi. I think we both did, even, right. as somebody who I was far too slow to give his due to. And... Kessler, man, Kessler was really good, and he yeah. just fell short against three outstandingly good super middleweights, um, and and actually got one win, I think, over Frotch, didn't he? Um, right. He was he was a really very very good fighter, uh, and he just wasn't quite good enough to beat Calzaghe, who, yeah, unconventional as he may be, was always entertaining, and uh, and just a terrific fighter. Yeah, this is a really good good suggestion. Yeah, and you know, I still haven't filled out my Hall of Fame ballot, but I'm glancing at it now because I was trying to remember if Kessler's on there. He is on there. I don't. I, mm-hmm. I kind of doubt he's getting my vote, but I, I think he is a classic case of a guy who at least deserves to have his name on the ballot. He was a really good fighter. He really was, yeah. Uh, at number three, I'm going somewhat obscure again with non-championship-level fighters in just a sick, sick brawl. Did you happen to watch the Contender Season 3, Kieran, the super middleweight season? Yeah. I didn't see that season. Okay. 
the finals. Stevie Forbes was fighting at Super Middleweight or something. No, no. So that was season two, and Stevie uh, Forbes was. I think it was a. I think that may have been uh, 154 pounds, and he was fighting way out of his weight class. Yeah, um, but season three was at Super Middleweight, and the finals pitted Saki Obika against Jadon Codrington, and it was positively savage. Uh, both fighters hit the canvas in the first round. They both kept bombing away. Gradually, Bika took over, dished out an absolute beating, but Codrington remained dangerous until finally the fight was stopped in round eight of a scheduled 10. This was one of those fights that started out thrilling and by the end was kind of disturbing and tough to watch. Such was the punishment uh-huh. Bika was dishing out, but an absolutely sensational brawl that people don't really talk about anymore, but they should, and I am. Anyway, and I presume you have nothing to say about it because you don't remember it or haven't seen it or weren't watching The Contender that season. All I remember about, and particularly about Jaden Codrington, is if I recall correctly, he would either knock you out or get knocked out. Mm-hmm. Um, very little boring distance fights in, in Jaden Codrington's career, as I remember. In fact, I'm just looking him up on BoxRec now. 21 and 4, lost all four fights by knockout, and 17 of his 21 wins were by knockout. So, yeah, that's pretty close. He either knocked yeah. you out knocked out and Sakio Bika was in a lot of real knockdown drag out brawls himself too I think and I looking back on their career I would consider Bika to have been at a skill level or so higher than Codrington mm-hmm. but yeah that doesn't surprise me that these two were in a a, a, a real uh, a, a real impressive brawl yeah all right uh my top two should both be fairly unsurprising at number two a tragic fight can also be a great fight um, this was a Showtime classic from 1995 that is remembered for its awful consequences, but it would be a disservice to the fighters not to also call it a thrilling fight and, and recognize the talent and bravery on display. I'm, of course, talking about Nigel Ben, KO10, Gerald McClellan. McClellan knocked Ben out of the ring in round one. Ben climbed back in and a thriller ensued. McClellan scored another knockdown in the eighth. Through nine, he led on two cards with the third card even, and then tragedy in the 10th. McClellan went to a knee, was blinking unusually, appeared to quit, but as we later learned, he had endured a brain bleed and was about to collapse, and and he suffered severe damage. And I recall when I was working at the ring, Nigel once wanting to include this on some all-time great fight lists of some sort, and there being a discussion of, you know, how can we call it a great fight? It, it was an awful fight. Um, and, and Nigel's feeling was, if the fight was great, we owed it to McClellan to recognize it as such. <laughs> so feel icky about it, if you like. I think this belongs at number two on this countdown. Yeah, I, and I, I thought about this too, and and I would have done the same, uh, put it on the list myself. It was, the consequences are potential consequences of boxing and i don't think we can joy boxing and celebrate it and then pretend it didn't happen when this the the, the consequences are not what we like right if you know what i'm saying yeah that's, we, we celebrate people punching each other in the brain what do we think is going to happen right uh sometimes so the bravery i thought that both men showed here the it must have been incredible ringside for this you know there was frank bruno in his bright red suit right on the ring apron jumping up and down and screaming for nigel um like you said it could have all been over in that first round when when mcclellan locked him clear out of the ropes um ben celebrating wildly afterwards because he didn't have any idea of what had happened to McClellan course, at yeah. first. Um, and obviously obviously his adrenaline was going through the roof this was really 
this was a fight, right? We talk about boxing matches and we talk about fights. This this was a fight, and Ben was really fighting for his. I don't want to. I hate to say it, but in a sense, almost fighting for his life in there, and obviously it almost cost McLean and his. And and right. Ben was never the same, was he? Either he was done after a few more fights. I think he only had one more win. Um, and, and that was that. It kind of took it out of him as well. The, the consequences were absolutely tragic. But again, if we're going to support boxing and be a part of boxing, we can't turn away from what the negative consequences. So I understand where Nigel was coming from, and uh, I, I agree with you for putting it on the list. Okay. Uh, number one here, it may be obvious in terms of the magnitude of the fight and the action and drama. It's tough to beat the 1989 rematch between Sugar Ray Leonard and Tommy Hearns, which ended in a controversial 12-round draw. Now, to be fair, this is barely a super middleweight fight. Um, They each had a super middleweight belt, uh, and those belts were both on the line. But Leonard only weighed 160, Hearns 162.5. So technically a super middleweight fight, but they were basically middleweights. Um, But it was a spectacular battle between aging icons. Leonard went down in rounds 3 and 11, then rallied to have Hearns out on his feet in the 12th. One of the most dramatic finishes you'll ever see. Hearns stayed up and heard the final bell. Almost everyone felt Hearns had done enough to win on points. Even Leonard admitted afterward that Tommy deserved the win. But the judges made it a split draw, 113-112 one way, 113-112 the other way, and 112-112. A controversial outcome, but a great fight. Uh, the, the last great fight between the four kings, mm. and uh, and I think the greatest super middleweight fight of all time, especially when factoring in the star power involved. Mm, and, and talking about it not barely being a super middleweight fight, wasn't this just one bout after Ray had won the light heavyweight belt? <laughs> yes. Where- while weighing like 163 or something like that. Right. Um, yeah, no, this was a terrific fight. We look at the sort of veterans tour portion of the career of, of these guys as being a disappointment. And particularly when we think of the like of Leonard Duran three, that was right. definitely the case. But yeah, this was a surprisingly entertaining bout. I, I can't remember where I had it on the, uh, on my list of the best fights of the, of the four Kings era, but it was surprisingly high on that for its entertainment value and uh yeah had it had it you know not been a 12 round fight tommy might have been in trouble like he like he was the first time they met right. as well but um yeah terrific fight and it for ray to actually admit that actually he deserved to lose to lose then you know that tommy really deserved because ray was not one to to be giving those kind of compliments <laughs> out to anybody let alone tommy Right. Absolutely. Um, So I do have also some honorable mentions I'll run through quickly. Um, We've talked about this fight a time or two recently. Uh, Antoine Eccles, KO3 Charles Brewer in a controversially stopped three round war on Showtime. Um, Several Carl Frotch fights warranted consideration. His first fight with Kessler, his knockout of Jermaine Taylor, his close win over Jean Pascal. You can throw a George Groves fight in there if you like. Um, From the same era, Lucien Boutet versus Labrado Andrade. Yeah. I don't I don't know if the fight itself was great. I just remember the insanely controversial ending with Boutte basically knocked out with no time left and, and the ref in Canada giving him a long count and helping him hear the final bell. Um, one from a decade earlier, James Tony KO-12 Prince Charles Williams in an action-packed fight. That's a good uh, fight. Yeah. Uh, one from this year, uh, possibly what will be named the fight of the year, Jaime Munguia over Sergei Derevyanchenko. Um, and one last one, this isn't really even an honorable mention. Uh, I'm just mentioning it because I feel like it. Um, an all-time classic KO on Showbox 
Alan Green, KO1, J. Don Codrington, uh, as quick and violent and memorable as they come. Yeah, indeed. Our friend Andre is going to have some words with you but um, about not being on that list. But um, uh, yeah, but, you know what? Uh, what what Andre um, Ward all time barn burner am I leaving off the list? Yeah, yeah, precisely. <laughs> but uh, it, it was it was the nature of his thing. Yeah, right. Carl Frost will be happy that he's on there four times, even if he's not in the top five. You'll have some words with you about that. But uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow, I'm, I'm, a lot of people are going to be angry at me, huh? Well, you know, and then Caleb Plant will continue to be angry. At <laughs> well, right, right, rightly so. He, it, uh, not, the other guys have no right to be angry at me. Caleb Plant should is and should remain perpetually, at least irked, if not downright angry at me. And then I seem to remember when we did a Zoom interview with him, just in case there was any danger he'd forgotten it, you reminded him about it before we even did the interview. So he's probably <laughs> still carrying that around with him. That sounds right. I yeah, you know. Caleb Plant and I are two different kinds of personalities. I'm the kind of guy who thinks, you know, a goofy little icebreaker will be a great way to start this. And uh, Caleb Plant is not the goofy little icebreaker type he's of guy, not. it seems. He's, he's, definitely, he's definitely not, no. no. But that's actually a, a good list. And actually, it's surprising that for such a um, relatively recent weight division, how many really, really good fights have been. And actually, how many really, really good champions we've had at super middleweight. Mm. Uh, it's It's... Some divisions haven't quite worked, like we were saying, with cruiserweight, but super middleweight definitely has. Yeah, and um, among like uh, along the Andre Ward lines of like great champions who passed through who just don't make this list because they weren't in all-time thriller fights. We didn't even mention Roy Jones, probably the greatest super middleweight yeah. of all time. So. Indeed. Indeed, exactly. All right, that will do it for this episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Thank you very much for again all your kind tweets and for your letters into the mailbag. We really appreciate that. We will be back next Monday with our post-fight thoughts on Fury and Ganu, and perhaps the first of our Showtime retrospective content. Until then, thanks as always for listening. Be safe. Bye.